What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. What's going on, people? Welcome back. On today's episode, I have Richard Grove, who is a forensic historian and also a corporate whistleblower. He's well-researched in the area of global affairs, geopolitics, history, and more. I found out about Richard years ago on an Alex Jones show and decided to listen to his podcast. And uh, when I came across his show, I was, I was blown away because some of his shows were packed with information that lasted eight hours long, some of them even longer. And uh, some of his shows had congressional hearings, interviews about CIA drug trafficking, government corruption, unpopular information about 9-11, etc. And uh, I remember saying to myself, how does this guy retain all of this information? You know, he's like a walking encyclopedia, but uh, very surgical when it comes to digging into history. And he produced a film called State of Mind, which talks about how the minds of the masses are controlled and addresses who's doing the controlling. Richard has also produced a course called Autonomy, which is a course geared towards independence mentally, financially, and it promotes self-sufficiency as well as education in the areas of history, logic, communication, and more. It's like a university in a sense, because there's so many courses that you can take, which are self-paced. You can take a course on logic. You can learn about grammar, rhetoric, homesteading. If you want to learn about farming and how to grow your own food, there's courses on that. There's lectures about history, the education system in America and how it was, how it subverted the population and dumbed down the population. And during the first few lectures that Richard gave in the course, I learned about the school teacher by the name of John Taylor Gatto. And uh, he wrote a book called The Underground History of American Education, which talks about how the public school system indoctrinates children and who's involved with changing our education system and for what purpose. During one of the lectures, Richard talks about a book by John Taylor Gatto called Weapons of Mass Instruction. He has an interesting passage in that book. I'm just going to read it for you. He says, starts off with the question, do we really need school? I don't mean education, just forced schooling, six classes a day, five days a week, nine months a year for 12 years. Is this a deadly routine really necessary? And if so, for what? Don't hide behind reading, writing, and arithmetic as a rationale because 2 million happy homeschoolers have surely put that banal justification to rest. Even if they hadn't, a considerable number of well-known Americans never went through the 12-year ringer our kids currently go through, and they turned out all right. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln. Someone taught them to be sure, but they were not products of a school system, and not one of them was ever graduated from a secondary school. Throughout most of American history, kids generally didn't go to high school, yet the unschooled rose to be admirals like Farragut, inventors like Edison, captains of industry like Carnegie and Rockefeller, writers like Melville and Twain and Conrad, and even scholars like Margaret Mead. 
In fact, until pretty recently, people who reached the age of 13 weren't looked upon as children at all. Ariel Durant, who co-wrote an enormous and very good multi-volume history of the world with her husband, Will, was happily married at 15, and who could reasonably claim Ariel Durant was an uneducated person? Unschooled, perhaps, but not uneducated. So I thought that was an interesting passage from John Taylor Gatto in that book. Richard also interviewed John Taylor Gatto in a multiple-part series called The Ultimate History Lesson, which I'm going to link to. I've learned a lot in this course, and I'm still learning. I've met people from all walks of life. I've talked to nutritionists. I've learned about video editing from students. There's presentations from doctors about how to stay healthy during COVID and also just in general, you know, how to maintain your body. There's just so much to go through. So I would say if you're a lover of knowledge and you're looking for ways to become self-sufficient, you want to learn skills and you're looking for real practical education along with the community of like-minded people, I think you should consider this course. And lastly, Richard also said something that stood out to me. He was talking about being consumed, like people being consumed with video games. And he said, you know, life is the video game. This is the real video game. We have real life characters and villains here. You know, there's enough to keep us busy. We don't need to be consumed in video games or things that aren't going to help us make progress. And I'm going to end with this quote by John Taylor Gatto, which I thought was very interesting. He says, you either learn your way towards writing your own script in life, or you unwittingly become an actor in someone else's script. So I'll leave you with that, guys. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Give me some feedback and let's get started. Peace. Thanks for coming on the show today, Richard. Thank you for being persistent, despite the resistance, Rashad. I know you've been asking <laughs> to get on my schedule since like March, and uh, I feel bad every time my schedule saturated, but you hit me at a good time. This is in between seasons of autonomy. Uh, it's a busy time, but it's a time where I do take a lot of open meetings that aren't regular meetings baked into my schedule every week. So good for you through uh, getting through to Stephanie and getting on my schedule, man. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for making time. I know you're uh, you're a busy guy, especially in this world. Cool. So. I wanted to start out with getting into your beginnings and your journey to this path and your um, your experience being a 9-11 whistleblower. Um, you were working at this company called Silverstream, correct? Yeah, correct. It's uh, publicly oh. it went public right like August of 2000, probably. So okay. it was a 300 person company and then they they went public right before I got there. Okay. And what led to you becoming a whistleblower? Like, what did you see that caused you to raise your voice? All right. So my whistleblowing experience is uh, a couple years later. It's, it picks up in 2003. So that 9-11 situation that you're referring to, the best thing is I can refer you to the source material, which is 9-11 synchronicity. I think it's episode one called Project Constellation. It's a right. two-hour unfolding of uh, a mix of my corporate experiences juxtaposed to history that I was encountering that was definitely part of reality, but not on the map given to me by schooling. And then uh, I ended up becoming a whistleblower in 2003. And that was as uh, there was a federal mandate called Sarbanes-Oxley that was put in by Congress in 2002 to stop companies from committing accounting fraud. At that time, there were several huge major accounting scandals going on. 
There was uh, Enron. There was Anderson Consulting. There was Tyco International was one of the biggest ones. So I went to this company because they sold a piece of software that would prevent these types of accounting frauds. And Congress mandated that publicly traded companies had to buy this type of software to protect themselves from these types of accounting fraud. So I thought it was a really good opportunity to like, you know, be engaged with a piece of software that's actually making the world a better place. Keeping these companies from having fraud committed, maybe they're not even like in the middle of it. Like they were using proxy companies uh, to, to, to like, you have a company, you think you're protected. There's a backdoor in the software. Other companies can transact now on your behalf and make it look like you did it if you ever got caught. So I was actually educating my clients on the whistleblower provisions of the software that they were installing. So as part of the mandate, I had to teach like, so they, they not only had to have the software, they needed to know specifically how to blow the whistle if their company was violating the rules. Okay. So mm-hmm. I would rent a hotel in New York, like a ballroom, and I would invite all the clients there and we would do a training on how this is how you blow the whistle. Right. Ironically, a couple months later, I had to follow that same process that I was recommending to my clients that I had to teach them about. I had to do it internal uh, to my own employer. And we were in the middle of a buyout. <clears throat> and my first thinking was the company buying out the company I was working for, they had offered like $700 million, And a couple months later, they ended up selling for like $1.7 billion. And the only difference in the company was sales forecast sheets. And I was asked to falsify sales forecasts during the time of the merger And I knew that these numbers were being passed up directly to the people working on the merger. So I felt uncomfortable falsifying numbers. And I felt like if my boss really wanted it done, why doesn't he do it himself? Go ahead and falsify the numbers yourself. I'm not going to do that for you. So when I went to blow the whistle, I called the SEC. The SEC had been investigating my employer. They already had an open investigation. So I called the attorney in San Francisco, a guy named Kevin And I said, Kevin, I work at this company. You guys are already investigating a different division. I'm seeing similar things. I gave him examples. I told him I had evidence. And he said, we could put you in prison for a long time for talking about that stuff outside the company. And I was like, this is not the Mm -hmm. result or the the reply I thought I'd be getting by calling law enforcement, like a threat not to blow the whistle and don't talk about this and this sort of thing, right? So it was after that call that I formally wrote up the email, said, I'm blowing the whistle because of this, this, and this. And I followed all the stuff to the, you know, dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's in the process. And I ended up going to court um, and it, it took years. I had to learn how to represent myself in court. I had to learn the rules of the court. I engaged against a multi-billion dollar corporation with a multi-billion dollar law firm. And that law firm had... Uh, an ominous track history, like a track record of defending the United States government and narco-terrorism. So when Mm -hmm. the government gets in trouble, they call that law firm. That's who I was up against. So I thought I had good evidence. I did have good evidence. It got admitted into court. It was the people I was accusing in their own words saying they were doing it. So I thought that'd be good enough. And uh, after several years of going through that process, I found out it's it's a rigged game. It's on it's an unwinnable process. Even if you were to win, they would just appeal it and appeal it until your life is ruined and you give up. It's a war of attrition, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it was the right thing to yeah. do, but it wasn't a smart career move because I I scuttled a multi million dollar career 
in order to do the right thing in a country that no longer appreciated people who do the right thing. In fact, like the employer that I was suing, he was Cheney's biggest fundraiser at that time. Back when they were president and vice president, he was ambassador to Ireland. So he had friends in the administration at the time. So he was like an untouchable guy and I should have known better. But what they were doing was wrong. It was provably wrong. And the 2008, 2009, like that whole subprime crisis where people got taken advantage of, where are all the emails of those people creating those crazy deals and packaging them up and slapping an A rating or whatever, triple A rating on them and selling them in the market, right? There's a whole huge fraud that went on in the early 2000s that should have been prevented by the Sarbanes-Oxley software. But when you're selling software, and in my case, I had a client tell me there's a backdoor in it, that there's a vulnerability, and that right here in this process, you could delete the file and it looks like it never existed, which is what these other people, these companies want. And the example would be, a couple weeks into my term at that company, one of my first meetings, it was like July, first week of July, 2003, was with Tyco International. And it wasn't with like the IT manager of this multi-billion dollar company. No, no, no. It was in a large boardroom with a whole bunch of people at the boardroom table. And the, the chief person at the meeting was a woman named Valley Baudasano. And she was the chief general counsel for Tyco International, e.g. the top lawyer in that firm, in that international conglomerate. And when I said, I'm there, prevents, I'm, I'm there doing a pitch for software that allows them to, to maintain their records and provide it to the SEC and FBI who were also investigating them still. And she said to me, I don't want to know how to keep this data and preserve it. I want to know how to get rid of it and make it look like it was never there. And that's the first time wow. I ever heard someone say the quiet part out loud in a meeting like that. And I was a little taken aback. And again, I'm new at the company. So my tech guy who was, a, you know, who had been at the company for a while, he's like the technical demonstrator guy. He's like, oh, we can talk to your people about that offline. We, we could kind of show you, you know, and I'm like, whoa, what are you guys facilitating? Like, what is this all about? And it was yeah. only a couple of weeks later that I went down to Maryland to the National Association of Securities Dealers. And I met with, uh, let's see, guy's name. I, I mean, I remember I have their cards. It was like Mark Rippey and John Brady were the two senior guys, National, National Association of Securities Dealers, their job's to watch the stock market, to make sure the fidelity of the stock market is not undermined by people doing shenanigans like backdoors and software. So I'm pitching them this software. They need to buy for their own institution. And they told me in that meeting that there's a vulnerability. They specifically use the words backdoor and it completely compromises the whole thing. And the, the metaphor I've always used for it is, it's like selling people a condom that they think is going to protect them, but really mm -hmm. it's got holes in it and it's, it's going to give you the opposite result that you're seeking. And I think that's, you know, that's racketeering. There's a whole bunch of RICO st statutes that I listed in my original paperwork. It wasn't just Sarbanes-Oxley. There was a whole bunch of stuff that I, I had evidence of and that uh, it led me down a road of autodidacticism. Because where I was at, there was no university course to prepare me for. I was at the, right. the cutting edge of where integrity turns into a gray area, into a black market area with these corporations. And it was very wow. educational process. I call it a million dollar education. So that's what it cost. Yeah, definitely. So, so this software allows for people to commit fraud is what you're saying? The software 
technically is there to protect those companies from, you know, doing accounting off the record, right? Because there's audit trails. And if I, if I'm doing a deal with you and I send you an email, there's an audit trail and the company has to preserve that audit trail. But when my boss is sending me an email and he calls me on the cell phone, cell phone's not in the audit trail. There's no tracking of what he tells me on the phone. So he writes me an email, tells me to do X, Y, and Z, but then calls me on the phone. Hey, I know I just sent you an email telling you to do the opposite, but here's what I need you to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And I knew every time, like that was a regular thing. So I'm only a couple of weeks in at the company and these people are rolling strong with whatever they're doing. And I'm trying to adapt. I'm like, you know, this doesn't seem kosher. And there was a lot of things like the, the CEO of the company I went to work for, he, he had a resume like all CEOs. Right. And on that resume, he said he was a, a an MBA master's in business administration from Babcock college or Babbitt college or something like that. Right. Well, as I was going through, cause he was an ex NFL football player and he didn't seem like the guy who should be a CEO at this company. It just seemed like a placeholder guy or a front man or something. Right. It didn't seem right. So when I checked him out, I called Babson. Oh, it was Babson University, Babson College. I called the registrar. Did uh, so-and-so ever graduate or attend? No. Well, it says here in his SEC paperwork and, you know, these sort of filings that he did, right? So that should be a red flag right there that uh, those sort of things go on. And they're, they're not checked. No one's interested. Like the company that was paying $2 billion for the company I was working for, you would think they're, int- they would be interested in, Hey, the product has a backdoor in it and the CEO has a fake resume. And there's a whole bunch of other retired NFL guys working at this company. And it almost seemed like, I don't know, doesn't seem like a legit software company. And right. I was there, you know, maybe six months, uh, before I blew the whistle. And, uh, that was the last corporation I worked for. That was the last time I yeah. went to paycheck land. And after that, I just decided I have more control over my future if I'm not in that world. And if I'm standing on my own producing value directly for the public, then I don't need that, uh, that infrastructure. And along with it, the drama and the crime and the fraud and all the other ills of it. Right. So you were mandated to use this software by law? Every publicly traded company in the United States was mandated. So if you look up Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, to the right. 2002 bill you'd read through on the wiki page and it puts in stipulations. There was also another uh, rule that came with it. It was called SEC 17A4, which also had to do with preservation of audit trails and data of transactions, but it specifically applied to the financial customers that I had, right? So Sarbanes-Oxley applied to all of them. And then the Wall Street customers I had, they needed also this the 17A4 coverage checklist, which was a little bit different, but did basically the same thing. Okay. And was Congress made aware that this software was faulty and it had back doors? I was hoping they would become aware when I won my lawsuit and the evidence was there for them to inspect, but that never, that never resolved. And it, when I fast forward through it at the end of the day, Paul Sarbanes is a Rhodes Scholar. So like I didn't know about the Anglo American establishment or people who were there to Rhodes Scholars are, are progressing the last will and testament of Cecil Rhodes in this world. Right. So um, I think the law was there to make the public feel safe. And I think the, the level of corporations that I was dealing with, I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar company that's now part of Dell. They knew what they were doing and they had approval. It was almost like that's what their form and function was. And the front was they also sell disaster recovery software. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. 
moving on a little bit in 9-11 synchronicity, you also talked about how your house was burglarized and there was information that was taken from your house. You lost your credit card accounts from uh, American Express and a bunch of other unfortunate things happened yeah, to once you. Once I blew the whistle, I mean, American Express, you have to pay the bill at the end of the month anyway, in full, right? But what they did was they knew I didn't, I was, I had corporate expenses on my card every month. And then as soon as I got fired, I wasn't getting reimbursed for those expenses that they owed me because it was a hostile termination situation. And I proved in court, they, they terminated, they terminated, they ordered my termination on the day that I blew the whistle. The guy I wrote to, uh, Jack Mullen, the senior vice president of human resources and Paul Dacier, who was the, the, general counsel of the company that I worked for at that point. They both knew and they both, uh, the, the attorneys, the one that ordered my termination and the HR guy, they both broke federal rules that would lead to prison time. There's prison terms for messing with uh, whistleblowers under Sarbanes-Oxley. There's supposed to be protections. And if anyone interferes or retaliates or X, Y, and Z, you're supposed to be protected. I could tell you that's not truthful, that it's an early warning system for these corporations to cover it up before it ever can hit the the courts or the media and the media is deep capture. Anyway, they're not going to go reporting anything that's going to adversely affect the shareholders in their advertisers and these sort of things. So. Wow. Yeah. What kind of information was, uh, was stolen from your, your apartment? My video camera, a whole bunch of tapes, videotapes. So I had, you know, footage of nine 11, not the day of, not the day after, but when I got back into the city, because the bridges were all closed for a couple of days before I could get back in. So I had a lot of footage of, uh, you know, there's personal footage, but when I can, when I think, why would someone take the video camera and not all the tapes, right? I still have some tapes from that camera, but yeah, man. And it, yeah. I had the, the apartment I lived in in New York was silly. Like, uh, it was the personal apartment of my landlord formerly. Right. So he, he and his dad own a bunch of buildings in New York. And this is where this dude lives. So it had it was like Maxwell Smart's apartment. It had like two big sliding deadbolts at the top and bottom of the door and like four locks in between. And then so if you're in if you're on the inside, you could slide them all shut. Right. But if you leave the house, I would never lock all of them. I'd lock three out of four. But if you're picking them, yeah. you don't know what which ones are locked and unlocked. Right. Um, so I don't know, like whoever got in went past like novice level of breaking an entry. There were uh, yeah. like jail cell door type of like a, a, a legit iron cell door on the back sliding door. So you couldn't Sounds come like in the from projects. the patio uh, into the apartment. It was a very <laughs> secure apartment, right? It was a two floor apartment, had a big back patio. It was like a thousand square feet. And uh, yeah. so for someone to infiltrate and get into my place, I felt like, oh, I just got touched by some somebody who knows how to like get in and get out without it didn't there was no there was no signs of entry. We were home for like a half hour before we even realized stuff stuff was missing around the apartment and something was going on. So, yeah. Man, that was mm. that's like 20 years ago. Yeah. What did you see on 9/11 that made you scratch your head and cause you to have more questions? Well, I thought it was an accident up until Tower 2 and World Trade Center 6, you know, Tower two explodes. World Trade Center six was to my right. And on some activity that was going on simultaneous to Tower two blowing up was going on. And that's, that's what spooked me. I mean, I'd never experienced 
panic or any level of that in my life, but I was in a, it was like a, it was like a foreign war zone all of a sudden, like one minute it's sunny New York city. And the next thing shit's blowing up and shit's falling down from high places in that area. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's really, it, it took a long time to like, there was always things that were like splinters in the mind, but the, if, without the context of knowing there's a group of people who have spent their time running coups and overthrowing other countries around the world. And that, that group of people has in its eyesight or that's in its, in its target site, bringing the United States back in so they can take over the whole world. And so if they can destroy our semblance of freedom, all these other things, right? So there's a long history to it. I didn't get that. But when I started learning about insider trades on the airlines and the companies that were hit, and then learning the connections of the companies that I were my clients to the intelligence community and learning that they all had uh, stood to gain like key bono who benefits. And let's go to the, let's just start with before nine 11. That's a real estate fraud situation. What's that? They wrote into the contract that different buildings is like totally separate attacks and it's totally separate payouts. It's almost as if the people who set that up a couple months ahead of time either knew the Arabs were going to do that or they framed the Arabs to do that. Either way, right. you could explore that. But when you get into who owned those buildings, when did it transfer, what kind of insurance did they set up, how were the policies written, and what did they end up paying out on those buildings? Like Larry Silverstein puts in a very small amount of money and as a result gets out billions of dollars and new buildings. Yeah. Right. He's got like World Trade Center seven was the first one to be rebuilt. And then they built what they told us was the Freedom Tower. It's no such thing, dude. It's like it's New World Order Central right there. And Tower of Babel in in a world with justice and truth, no dollar would ever be transacted on that World Trade Center property again. That would be the lesson because of what you guys were doing on these properties to get them attacked in the first place. Like, but instead they put these abysses as the monuments, like black holes, uh, where, you know, bottomless pits. It's very, right. very nihilist. So anyway, uh, not ever conceiving that there would be a terrorist attack in America when I saw the first tower on fire there. I just thought the fire department's going to show up at some point. And they got sprinkler systems in there, and they got good exit strategies. Like, I didn't think the buildings were in, I didn't think that building was in danger from the fire. I was hoping the people were on their way down the stairways and it just takes a while, right? But when Tower 2 blows up and then I see something popping off in the building right next to me, I panicked. I got out of Dodge. I drove to Jersey. I watched uh, the buildings come down on TV with two of my buddies. And I knew right then when those buildings fell on TV that day, I was like, whoa, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Each floor of each building, there's 200, let's say there's 220 floors between the two buildings. Each one's a, a square acre, a square acre of reinforced concrete, rebar concrete. It's got 47 steel cores in the middle of the building that would never just like collapse like that. Right. So like all the stuff I knew about the buildings, cause I had been in there before it didn't make sense. And then when I was like, well, let's just hear what the official story is. And it took them 445 days to give us the nine 11 commission report. I read it on the day it came out. And I was like, dude, all bets are off because the people who are supposed to investigate this, they left out all the real evidence and they're telling you some story. It doesn't make, make any sense because they made it up before they did the event. The guy who ran the 9-11 commission, uh, Philip Zelikow, 
He wrote an article in Council on Foreign Relations, Foreign Affairs, November 1998, talking about catastrophic terrorism in the future, like a second Pearl Harbor and World Trade Center attacks and stuff like that. So the people they put in charge to investigate it were probably in charge of it. And what did Zelikow do to qualify him as being the executive commissioner of the 9-11 Commission Report? He creates public myths. That was his specialty. So when they take a myth maker and they say, you're going to be the new Warren Commission report guy, and he shows up with an outline and gives it to his staff before they did research number one or interview number one, and then they take all the interviews and evidence that are inconvenient to their narrative and they keep it out of their report like it never existed. But there's tons of firefighters and people who were there who testified like there's legit stuff there, but it's not in the report. It never will be. So yeah, you start stacking that up. So it's like, okay, so the government kind of did something. I don't know. And there's some people, some corporations, right? And then you try to fit in like from that, which exists, how do we get these hijackers in here? Well, they don't make any sense either. And if you look at their profiles, oh, these are Saudi guys that they're teaching to fly Cessnas to smuggle drugs, diplomatic pouch type stuff, right? Saudis have a lot of need for drugs over there in their country, even though it's highly illegal, makes it even more valuable for those princes and their diplomatic pouches, right? So if you read uh, the the history of these alleged hijackers and what they were doing in Florida at strip clubs, snorting cocaine, doing all this stuff that's very not extremist Muslim-like, right? Right. Or you watch a documentary like it's uh, Venice Flying Circus. Let's see. Uh, mm-hmm. Muhammad Atta and the Venice Flying Circus. And he goes through and breaks it all down. He's like, here's what Atta was up to. And here's what all the, you know, uh, the guy who's doing the flight to the Pentagon, you know, when they go through, it doesn't make any sense. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not devout Muslims. They're not extremist enough to drive planes in the buildings and kill themselves. Right. Were they on the planes? We don't know. Cause if you look at that evidence, the footage doesn't match up with the time of day. There's so many holes in it, but they know people won't look with scrutiny at these things. They'll be like, right. oh, there's video. You saw the Pentagon get hit by a plane because they gave you two frames of a blurry object and people insert whatever they want there. And I don't know what happened at all these events, but I do know that the cartoonish picture they paint for people and the narrative they tell them is a very self-serving one and not one based on the evidence of the events. Yeah, absolutely. So you eventually went to a filmmaker to uh, share your experiences with that filmmaker to see if maybe they could make a film about that. And you were, they rejected your offer. Are you talking about Jamie Johnson? Well, I think you, you talked about Jamie Johnson, but then there was another filmmaker that I think made a film with Al Pacino. Oh, so um, you're talking the Lowell Bar- Bergman part. So Lowell Bergman is a journalist still, if you call him that these days. He worked for like PBS and Frontline and okay. he had a long history. And so they made this movie called, oh, was it The Insider? No. Uh, I think I think that was, was it. The, the insider, yeah, about the tobacco whistleblower John uh, Wygand was his name. So they have Al Pacino play Lowell Bergman in this movie, and Wygand, the whistleblower, faxes Lowell Bergman, and they have a meeting. And I was like, sweet, this is how it's done because I didn't know how to blow the whistle. But uh, by the time I was like looking, I couldn't find journalists or or attorneys who would even look, you know, look too much into the case once they saw what was involved and who was involved. Nobody wanted to risk their career, but I didn't understand that. So I sent it to Bergman. We corresponded. 
he said, send me what you've got. So I sent him like a, a banker's box of documents that are all like annotated and highlighted and like, you know, summary of what, what all this stuff is, right? It was all well put together. And I sent it to him. He receives it. He says he puts two, two guys on it. And these guys work like part time for him. They probably were his students in the past, but now they work at like San Francisco Chronicle and some other newspaper out there, right? So time goes by. I didn't expect like right away, but I did expect like when he checked it out to be like, wow, there's something going on here. People should know about this because it's not just about me and my situation at that company. It's about those companies in the publicly traded space being put at risk. The investors being put at risk, the consumers being like everyone's being put at risk. I figured maybe somebody should know. So Bergman comes back. I can't remember how long it was, six months, a year, comes back and says, like, you know, I had my guys check some of this stuff out and some of it does check out. But during the process, one of the guys got fired for doing this research and the other guy now doesn't want to touch it at all. It's like a a kryptonite for Superman type thing. Like they found it not to be... (laughs) something that's going to bring them value. It's going to be something that costs them value, access, whatever their deal was. And so he's like, sorry, kid, can't help you, right? So I was already in the legal process, but I was looking for if I could get someone in the media, I didn't understand how crooked it was back then. If I could get this story out to like Frontline or someplace, like it's, it wasn't about me. It was about like, check this out. And if there's a back door, the companies that are buying this should know. And if the other company is doing the same thing for the same type of product, people should figure that out sooner than later too, right? Because IBM had a competing product. You don't think they had a way to do the same thing that the little company that I was you know, working at that got bought by the big company during that time was doing? So right. yeah, man. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, and, and you also approached uh, Jamie Johnson about making a film about um, the elite and what was going on in world affairs, and he rejected your offer? Well, he had made a movie called Born Rich, and we saw it, and what we saw was, here's these scions to billion-dollar fortunes, and these kids can't, like, tie their shoes, or they, they're socially inept. Like, they have problems, too. So just because they had money didn't make their life, like, stellar. You know what I'm saying? So right. Jamie, I was like, he already made a movie. This is a good first salvo. But for your second movie, you could really touch on some better, more substantial things, right? So I wrote to him, and he wrote back, and we met in New York City at a coffee shop in like Gramercy Park area, someplace like that. And we met for, I don't know, three hours probably. And during that conversation, like I was telling him, like, hey, so they want to track, trace, database, everything. They got this thing called a radio frequency identifier, RFID, all this sort of stuff. And he's like, they don't have that. That's not real. I was like, no, dude, look here, I got the documents, you know? And then once I did convince them that, okay, so, cause my point was, bro, you got a billion dollars on your 21st birthday and you're not in the club. You don't know anything about this. They didn't invite you to any of the things. Like they're doing this to you too, man. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have the resources to do something about it. And your dad says at the end of the movie that Jamie, you need a hobby and maybe you should collect, you know, historical American documents. I'm like, bro, I got all the documents over here. You got to check this out, you know? So it wasn't really a rejection because I wasn't saying, let's do this thing. I'm just saying you should, you have the power knowing about these things to tell more people than I do. Right. Right. But like a couple of years later, he came out with his second movie called The 1%. And it reflected a lot of the things that we talked about in that conversation. That he apparently went off on his own, 
looked some stuff up and he's like, holy shit, there's like, there's some stuff going on and maybe we can poke it. Right. And so he had like Warren Buffett's granddaughter in that film and a whole bunch of these other scions to these, these huge fortunes in this country, right? The Vanderbilt kids, the Whitney kid, there's a whole bunch. There's a Baron in there, right? Do they still have Italian Barons? Yes, they do. Did you know about that ruling class? Mm -hmm. I didn't until I saw Cody on screen. I'm like, shit, there's an Italian Baron. So his second movie, the 1% is very hard hitting and uh, he does hidden camera on these people playing croquet at the beginning. It's like, mm-hmm. cause they, they play a game called croquet and it's about like them versus us. And like the people are the ball. Like, so they're, they're talking openly about this dude. And I was like, wow, how many right. people don't even know about, oh, I didn't know about it. So he pulls the curtain back on rich people world and like, you know, showing, Hey, these people aren't like smart. They're not doing this for your interest or your betterment. And you, you can make better informed choices in the world if you know this is what these people are rolling with. So, yeah, I didn't have a direct offer for him, but it was another like we had our hopes up. Like if he gets what's going on, then, you know, maybe he right. funds a project or does a, you know, uh, a media station to compliment like what's not at Infowars could be at the competitor, right? Yeah, could have been a major whistleblower himself. Well, his dad was too. His dad was a black sheep in the family because he went to Africa and made a film about how the Johnson and Johnson company was f-ing things up. Pardon my French. By administering like flawed uh, vaccines or I don't remember what the specifics like were. That. I just remember when I when I was doing research and he mentions it in this film, I'm sure, because like his dad is part of that and has the inheritance, but has philosophically and politically different ideas than the family members that are ruthless enough to maintain power in that company. Because what happened, wow. like the, I knew somebody from the other side of the family too. Um, they have a lot of Polish staff, maids, butlers, right? So I knew a, a Polish dude when I was in uh, Jersey and he was with the other side of the family because apparently old man Johnson at some point gets with his Polish maid and I think marries her. And then there's a bifurcation in the family, right? So there's like, there's two sides and Jamie's not on that side. He's on the other side of the family. So when I was talking to him, I'm like, you know how that, you know, because anyway, Johnson and Johnson yeah. family history. After going through all of this and um, having all these different experiences, um, what were some of the first books that you started to read that uh, opened up your mind to like world affairs and how the, the world really works? I already knew a little bit about Edward Bernays and propaganda you know, Milgram experiment, some of these things I had learned along, but I hadn't put it together into anything more than history channel would tell you about such things. Right. So I had not scratched uh, a level beyond public education teaching you. Right. The first book that really drew my attention was I think fire in the minds of men and the origins of revolutionary faith by James H. Billington. And then from there I had heard about uh, the Carol Quigley tragedy and hope book. So this is probably about 2003, 2004, because by 2004, I had Tragedy and Hope and I bought the website tragedyandhope.com. I wouldn't use that for a project for five years, but I knew it was important enough to buy it at the time and uh, to you know hold that for a future project where I need to tell people about this book that tells you about your non-elected rulers in an academic, you know, collegiate manner, not in a conspiracy theory manner. Right. Did you stumble upon that book through reading other books? I've, I heard about... The Tragedy and Hope book through a presentation by a guy who used to bootleg 
the tragedy and hope book when it was when they destroyed the plates and it wasn't being published anymore a dentist from uh california named stan monteith okay he had reprinted it so he did a presentation called the brotherhood of darkness now you gotta watch a presentation like this with a great like several grains of salt because it's in a you know the christian prophecy club forum right the place where they taped Mm. it right so he does this talk so it's for a christian audience okay and then there's some you know not so substantial evidentiary things said during the presentation, right? So I just leave all that as arbitrary. But when I hear that John Ruskin had these ideas and that his student Cecil Rhodes took it upon himself to get funding from the Rothschilds and go make those ideas into reality, and there's a book. So I caught on to like the facts, and I was incredulous. I was like, no, there's not, but I'll go look it up. I want to prove you wrong. This seems stupid. I would know by now. Somebody would have told me. Somebody around me would have read this, right? No. So it's always been my incredulity. Like, I didn't believe that there was a thing called the Bavarian Illuminati. But if you go to the 1911 encyclopedia, the last version of the encyclopedia before they edited it for for the masses, right? You can learn this in Jamie Johnson's movie, Born Rich. I think they talk about it in in the first movie. The Italian baron pulls his copy of the 1911, 11th edition Encyclopedia Britannica off the shelf. He says, this is, this is for the elite. They, they watered it down for the masses when they decided to go to the next edition and put it publicly. So only rich people used to be able to afford or have the knowledge in that book. And it very much does tell you all about the Bavarian Illuminati and a whole bunch of other things that you're not supposed to know about that were still in books. So I started collecting old books, first editions to make sure that I wasn't reading some internet rumor or misprint or hyperbole or paraphrasing. I wanted to know. Did Woodrow Wilson say these things? Did Lord Grey say these things? Did Colonel House really say these things? And sure enough, when I got those books, they do. They say those things. Bertrand Russell has a lot to say on the principles of social reconstruction and impact of science on society and how to use technology to control people. And education should be the, the dumbing down and artificially limiting of people so that they can't compete with the status quo. Wow. What would you say was the most influential book that, had like the strongest impact on your life that made you say, okay, you know what? I have to do something about this. Hmm. Well, a book that has had impact every day since I read it is Getting Things Done by David Allen, but that's not the answer you're looking for. Um, (laughs) I mean, I could take that. (laughs) Um, I think that it's not just one book. It's a, it's, it was reading a whole bunch of different books and hearing it from different sources, right? You know, if you can find one book and it says, Hey, there's a, there's a, group of people and they're running the world. Okay, that's great. But if you find 50 books like that, and they're all telling you pretty much the same thing, like the, you, you can go back in the 1950s and there's a, a book by C. Wright Mills called The Power Elite. Or you can jump fast forward, you know, 50 years and read Superclass by a guy from the Council on Foreign Relations and the Carnegie Foundation. And he tells you, here's the 5,000 people who really run things. And they're not elected. They're just rich and powerful people getting their, their things done. Or you can go to uh, a book like The Plutocrats by Chris Tia Freeland, who is currently the deputy prime minister in Canada and on the board of directors of the World Economic Forum. She's probably going to be the next prime minister of Canada. You could tell it's the, it's Plutocrats, the wealthy elite, the world they're creating and how they're leaving you behind. That's the gist of it. You're not in it. They got private planes and, you know, these sort of things. You're not going to have that. You're going to have no air conditioning. Go to a community cooling center to get some coolness. Yeah. Wow. Sorry about your carbon credits. <laughs> now, leading up to 
the present. You developed this course called Autonomy. Mm-hmm. What was your motivation for developing Autonomy? Well, it started over 10 years ago when I noticed and had expressly read through many books that we had a great education system in this country. And it was maybe informal. Maybe it was different state to state, town to town. But the principles of learning how to survive and thrive in the world were pretty solid. Pe- people here were robust and trailblazing and a you know, mentality of get her done, not suck onto your excuses and let them weigh you down. So once I figured out that the schooling system was artificially created, it's there for indoctrination and not for your education, and that they had to take things out of education in order to create schooling, the first thing they take out is free will. All right, well, what does it look like if we put free will back in? Oh, it looks more like education. What's it look like if we teach people how to learn anything? Well, it looks a lot more like education than schooling because schooling is teaching you desired outcomes through declarative sentences that are the opposite of you asking questions and finding your own answers. So basically, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like a ladder and you know where the rungs are supposed to be. You put the rungs back. Now it works as a ladder again instead of a sliding board or something you fall off of. Yeah. So it took a while. And then, uh, you know, I talked about it in Peace Revolution episode eight. That episode was called Parhesia, uh, the need for a conscious, comprehensive curriculum. And then I, you know, later in, in later years, I branded it as autonomy. But the University of Reason that houses that course, uh, we had created that before we interviewed John Taylor Gatto for the ultimate history lesson. And if you check, if you have the DVDs or anyone out there has the DVDs, uh, the University of Reason's logo is uh, on those DVDs and on the back of the case. Yeah. Do you think that we're making a return to um, real education? Because I noticed there's a pattern, there's like the homeschool movement has grown a little bit more. And, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't really hear much about homeschooling and we didn't have like self-paced uh, courses like you have online mm-hmm. and things like that. So right. do you think that this movement is becoming bigger and that um, the traditional education will be phased out? I think that the traditional schooling that teaches us things we don't need to know and that are superfluous and unnecessary for us to survive and thrive, I think it goes extinct on its own. You can only have time to learn useless things and not apply them in the world if you're in a big terrarium. But if they take away food, production, distribution, electricity, all these other things, you better get back to how do I get my needs met? What are my needs? And who do I need to talk to? Or what are the things I need to do to get that done? You're going to might need a shelter need, water need, food need, food for the future needs, things to trade, other people who have useful things need. There's a whole bunch of things. And we're not prepared to meet that. So as people do it voluntarily before they strip away the support systems, right? They're making it so people can't afford to travel, that they can't afford to eat anything but crickets because they're, they're, they're coming up with you have to eat the bugs really quick on us. Like if <laughs> yeah. I had told you last year, hey, in a year, they're going to be telling you, you got to eat bugs. And in two years, you're going to like it. You're going to be like, oh, these hot pockets are good with the cricket in there. You know, it's a little extra. Time, <laughs> right. But this is what they're doing by great reset. They want to make a world that's unrecognizable to the world we knew prior to the big event. And 9-11 was also one of those big events. We still have the Patriot Act today. It never went away because of 9-11. Same with a lot of the policies through the pandemic, never going to go away until people call them out and realize, hey, this is a bunch of nonsense. You're trying to control people with a bunch of lies. And if we all have lie detectors between our ears, we're a lot better off. 
But when we're assuming yeah. that Tony Fauci is like thinking on our behalf and he's doing the best he can, then we are giving the, those liars the power. Yeah. What would you say was your main objective or your main goal in creating this autonomy course? Well, to re-empower an individual to have the knowledge of self so that you can meet and greet the challenges that you have to to overcome those challenges and obstacles, to, me- to make goals happen consistently, it doesn't take a long time for people to learn what they're capable of. Once someone says, oh, I, I had developed a product or service, I took it to market, somebody said yes, and they sent me the first dollar, and a lot of people frame that, right? Because that's an example to them that they did this thing one time, and if they do it more times, they can be more independent, right? And so the question for people is, is, to whom can I offer service or products that would in turn pay me in some form of currency or trade? And how do I do that enough times not to be broke, homeless, without you know, uh, transportation toward my goals? And if people yeah. learn enough about themselves to say, oh, when I start something new, I get excuses and I talk myself out of stuff that I should be doing. And I end up like uh, being procrastinate. Like you get to know yourself to the point where it's like, I see all those things. I'm going to take action anyway, because I want to see what's on the other side of this opportunity. Right. When you are more excited about what's behind the door than the fear of, oh, I don't know how to unlock the door. Well, if I give you a skeleton key for success and a Swiss army knife for life, right? The access and the tools, then you're going out into the battlefield, armed, intelligent, looking for opportunity. And that's the way to approach life, not waiting for things to come to you or just hoping for the best or using the secret or something like that, which is like a half notion. Yeah, you got to have some great ideas. Get yourself a vision board, get yourself some goals. But you also need to plan out almost ruthlessly. What are the steps it's going to take to to do those goals, right? Oh, I don't even have a pencil. You got to sharpen a pencil. That's step number one. Get a piece of paper. Now start writing stuff down, right? You got to move yourself forward. That knowledge of self of how to move yourself forward in any of these situations Right. You could extrapolate it and say wilderness survival. You just were in a plane crash. You found yourself hanging out of a parachute upside down in the tree. Do you need food first? Do you need water first? Do you need shelter first? What do you need to do? You got to be able to make those decisions. Otherwise, you perish. Most people perish in those situations because of self-pity. Self-pity is that default where it says, oh, you could have filled yourself with some experience, some knowledge, some wisdom, some skills in this area, but you didn't. So now you die. Right. And this is something that's been going on in human beingness since we had words to describe such things. It's part yeah. of the, the human journey. So you got to know yourself, know your environment and know how to uh, intersect opportunity uh, with uh, the things that you can do to avail yourself of helping and leveraging that opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Well, just to disclose for listeners, I am an autonomy student. I did take the course. And, you know, one thing I'll say is that it was one of the most unique courses I've ever taken. Probably, I don't know, probably the best course I've ever taken. I've never had that type of education or have received that type of information before. And I remember, you know, going through some of the lectures and I I said to myself, like, you know, I, I went through schooling, but I never learned a lot of this information. And I think one of my, one of my favorite um, aspects um, or pieces of information and in the course was um, around like the first lectures where you talked about the education system. Like I I didn't know 90% of that stuff as far as like how our original education system worked and where it 
got derailed and who was involved with changing the education system and for what purpose. Like you really got into the nuts and bolts of that. I mean, I've met people in the course that are like nutritionists who have uh, sent me information on diets and um, foods. I've met people that have taught me about video editing. You have logic courses in there. So I just bring that up to show off some of the benefits. But what can you tell people like if they're considering taking a course or they want to get involved with some type of self-development, what kind of benefits can autonomy provide for them? Well, self-development is is a broad term and it goes on for the rest of your life. If you're a learner, you got to get up and learn every day. So what tools could you have on your magic tool belt, your utility belt, you know, like superheroes have, they got those tools on their belt. What tools could you have to more easily glide through life? Now, it still takes work, but you're not getting snagged as much. You're not falling down and having to get up as much. And uh, it's more about knowing yourself so that you won't quit on yourself, right? The only leap of faith I tell the students they need is the leap of faith that you know how to learn something you don't know how to learn, uh, you didn't learn yet, right? That you have this ability that if you go through this certain process, you will come out on the other side with knowledge, skills, experience, and empowerment. So that's kind of the, the, the first element. And then from there, once you know how to show up for yourself and draw value from a valuable source, right? Like take water from the well with the bucket, then it's a matter of where do you want to go? What do you want to do to get there? Right? Do you want like passive income? Well, you need to design something that's evergreen. You need to put it out there with marketing money every month. And while you sit back and reap the benefits of that, you have a system or a method in place. People expect that result without the method or the work that goes into building out that method in the, play, in the first place. So once you have expectations set up like, oh, if I want water, I can either go to the river or I can dig a well. Same thing. You can go to the market and make your offer or you can dig a well and have people come to your well for their water, right? So that's a metaphor, but inside it is the teaching of what you have to do. And once you know how to go get a bucket of water from either source, it doesn't mean you're going to spend all day getting buckets of water. Some people do that. They're like, I know how to make money, so I'm just going to make money all day. My perspective is money is a tool that allows you to do certain things in life. You should be focused on doing those certain things in life. And then once you're oriented like that, you attract enough money to you that that facilitates that uh, endeavor. And how do you attract it? Business. By making an offer. And adding value, like you get some raw materials, you add value to it, you sell it at a higher price, and that's a business. And all you have to do, like the, you know, it seems simple, but they've put so many obstacles in people's way, and then they take away people's self esteem and their ability to see a better future for themselves, or that they, you know, know how to work and have the work ethic to go deserve and earn that future for themselves. So, really, it's about going from the, the unplanned self. Right. We all just went through the process and we ended up someplace. And now it's about, okay, I see more options. I have more skills. I can pick a place of my choosing and I can go and engage with that either physically or mentally and move through life where you're writing your own script instead of being an unwitting subject in a script being written by your employer or your government or whoever is running your life. Mm, That's a bar. I've heard you say that freedom has a bad marketing strategy or something around those lines. Why, why do you think that propaganda and deception is wrapped up in such a beautiful flag or beautiful design 
and freedom, the message of freedom isn't as appealing. Well, there's a lot of money on the other side to make everything look shiny and, you know, Hollywoodized, right? People who are looking better than most people doing things that are beyond what most people can do, setting that, that next level. I think freedom is much more grassroots, visceral, unpolished, real people, real shortcomings, uh, unplanned, and all these things make it kind of antithetical to the sterile, multi-level bureaucracy that like produces a Hollywood movie, right? So it's like the difference between average people making a movie and Hollywood making a movie. Average people, you can make a documentary, put some cameras on tripods, get some great content. That's reality. You want to make an unreality? You need Hollywood, kid, right? You need their special effects and all the other layers of unreality that they're professing in because there's a lot of money in that. So it's kind of the same thing. The The companies that have the biggest um, PR campaigns are usually the ones that have the biggest cover-ups, right? Like, you know, after Dow Chemical or DuPont or any of these companies has a big, you know, toxic waste dump or accident or something like that, super fun site creation, then they go and do PR campaigns and make it all look bright and shiny and green agenda. And now we're going to change this for you. And, you know, so it's just people buy, buy into things that aren't true, given to them through schooling and media. And if they had more discerning personality and a more curious in, intellect, there'd be a lot less idiocracy going on in the world. Yeah. So that's what we try to give people back. Allow yourself to be comfortable with who you are, know the questions and the people to whom to ask the questions to get forward movement on your goals, learn how to learn something for yourself and then make a goal and learn everything you need to know, you know, take, take the steps in between. So it can get from right. very general, like I could teach that to a sixth grader, to the very specific that I teach to seasoned executives and serial, serial entrepreneurs, people with many businesses. Absolutely. That's what that means. Right. Yeah, I, I asked that because um, it's just a question that's always been on my mind. And I think about like what's going on today and what's going to happen in the future. Like we have an unprecedented amount of information at our fingertips. And yet... We still, it seems like a lot of us are still like mentally enslaved. And I always go back to asking myself, does, does humanity prefer freedom or slavery? Like even with all of this information that we have. Well, the default is a, excuses and assumptions. So in that way, the default of humanity does prefer slavery, but the conscious part of humanity does not prefer slavery. The conscious part of humanity doesn't think thinking is hard. Right. Uh, a conscious part of humanity understands that, wow, we can use knowledge and wisdom and understanding to lift people out of that base state of mind and actually get them conscious thinking and participating in their own life instead of being an unwitting spectator, standby, you know, bystander of it. Yeah, I, I just um, I don't know, just something that always boggles my mind. I mean, the leaders know this. They know that most people want to be led. And the people that are running the world, they, they don't think they're telling you the truth. They know they're lying. And they know some of us will pick up on that. But they also know the majority of people will just believe Bill Gates or Tony Fauci or former Vice President Biden or any of these characters out there. Yeah. And has anything um, caused you to like, with dealing with these experiences that you had in the past with whistleblowing and reading all these books about world affairs, has it changed your mind about spirituality at all? Not really. I mean, Einstein said huh. you, it's a fundamental decision that everyone has to make 
whether or not they think this universe is a hostile or friendly place. And I think the universe is neutral, but it's not against us. So let's call that friendly, right? And so there are certain elements that we have control and influence over. There's certain things we don't. We can't control what happens to us. We can control how we react to it. For that, you need philosophy. You need spirituality. You need the connectivity at a higher level than base consciousness. And this is why psychedelics are really interesting for people because it gets them out of that everyday waking state into an ecstatic state where they can bring in a lot more metadata on the same things that are around them for a brief time. And then it can have a couple of years to contemplate what that all means, you know? So spirituality, um, I haven't really like spirituality to me. It's nothing that's coming from books. It's coming from life experiences and connections with life. So, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not a black pill person from reading all this information. Like I can read about all the bad things people are doing. I mean, right now, there are people out there tra- child trafficking and doing a whole bunch of horrific things that we can't even like comfortably talk about because it's f***ed up. That's always going on in yeah. history. Maybe we could turn it down a little bit. You know, it's like keep it to the minimum level instead of them trying to maximize the levels on these things and indoctrinate people to think it's normalized to sexualize children. They don't have the yeah. capacity to make decisions about sexuality or age of consent or any of that stuff. That's why they're, they're children. They're not adults. They're not, and they shouldn't be interacting with people who do have those things that didn't create them physically in this place. So they're going after the attitudes, values, behaviors, and beliefs of everybody. And if you don't have your connection to spirit uh, and you don't use your soul to invoke that, your soul is your, your breath, your capacity to speak what is in your mind. So there's a spirit aspect. It's like the spirit's more like the electro consciousness aspect and the soul is the ability to take something from that consciousness and speak it into this reality creating sound waves that trans transition to other people aristotle's book on the soul is a is a really cool ancient perspective on that but i think there's a lot of validity in those so for people who sell their soul they give up their right to speak what's on their mind and they will say things that are not true in order to uh progress an agenda and that's your Bill Gates's, yeah. your Fauci's, your former Vice President Biden's, like all them, all those people are not speaking their true mind. They're saying things that are not true in order to take away your power. And then that's where the learning comes back. The intellectual self-defense pushes back on that and says, wait a minute, didn't you guys run an exercise that did this exact thing? Why aren't you more prepared now? Why are you guys so unprepared? You ran an exercise like, you know, and but <laughs> people don't do that. They don't put them on the spot. And uh, there's more work to be done every day. So I'm an optimist yeah, about cool. that that situation. Well, that's good. That's good. I mean, I, I think some people, um, some people just can't conceive um, a certain level of evil. And I remember when, um, you know, when 9-11 took place and even with this coronavirus breakout, when I started doing research and, you know, you talk to people about these things and world history and things like that. And some people just, they can't believe certain events because they're so, they seem so outlandish. And the average human being can't picture or conceive of a, a a leader, a global leader engaging in some crazy nefarious activities because they don't do it themselves. So they're like projecting their normal behavior on a global leader because they think everybody else is like That's them. That's the blind spot. And it's capitalized yeah. on by those people. Now, 
in Project Constellation. We started this interview. You asked me a question. I pointed to Project Constellation, which I think is the first episode of 9-11 Synchronicity Podcast. The opening paragraph of that piece is that there exists a conspiracy so monstrous the average individual cannot contemplate or comprehend its existence. And that's a, that's a quote from J. Edgar Hoover in 1958 in the Elks magazine. And he's not talking about communism. So what is the conspiracy that he's talking about? There's, you know, so that's what it's, it's a, it's a Ram problem, right? You don't have the, you know, you're running 512 Ram versus 25 megabits of Ram. You know, you're not going to be able to get the whole picture. The program won't even open up. Most people's attention span too small to even open up the program to start looking at the aspects they don't know, right? You go to yeah. someone and talk, about, talk to them about 9-11. Well, let's say that, you know, they don't know 114 key facts that would let them make another choice. So they're going to say, well, it's impossible to, to believe anything but the, the official story happened. But if you're like, hey, uh, aside from these guys in caves with box cutters, there's also this really well-oiled, well-armed, well-planned group that said they wanted to do things just like this and had war games just like this. Do you think maybe they had something to do with it? You know, I'm just saying there's two teams on the field that could have done the crime. We've only looked at one. Why aren't we looking at the other one? That's the more likely culprit. You know, yeah. same as, you know, Peter Daszak doing the investigation for Wuhan when he's the chief, uh, he would be the prime suspect in a real investigation. Because he wrote the DARPA grants that said they wanted to do the exact same thing that the pandemic em ended up doing. So why would DARPA need to fund it if they could just wait for nature for a year and it would do it for them? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. it's uh, They gain it's, a function because nature won't do that. That's the point. There you go. Yeah, I mean, some of this, this wickedness runs deep. Like there's a, there's a scripture, uh, Jeremiah 7, 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it so i mean some of this evil just runs so deep that you can't even you can't even imagine it but anyway richard do you have any projects that you're working on anything you want to plug i got lots of projects but i think the difference between us and them is that the people who act evil like that they were not recipients of love growing up you know they didn't have they mm -hmm. probably had a turmoil traumatic childhood a lot of these people who end up in leadership positions do, especially the second generation of these, you know, wealthy robber baron families. They have other people raise their kids. There's not a human love connection there to be lost in the first place, which is why I think it makes them empty vessels for the agendas of of others. Let's put it that way. Uh, my current project yeah. every Sunday night, I do a podcast uh, dis, uh, distilling the news of the week. So there's a lot of news. It's hard to keep up. You're not getting context uh, in history with other channels. So we break it down, give you the deep dives and the contextual history so you can understand and make better choices, decisions, judgments, and actions in your life. It's called Grand Theft World Podcast, 9 p.m. Eastern time, Sunday nights. And then during the week, 85% of my time is spent with clients of Autonomy Unlimited, our digital marketing and consulting company, and students and graduates of the Autonomy Training Course. And the website for that is getautonomy.info forward slash ignite. And Rashad, just for anyone who had the courage to listen to this interview, I brought something free. And that, that web link is getautonomy.info forward slash freedom vault. Freedom vault is one word. And uh, you can post a link to that as well with this episode. Cool. Last question. 
Will you be publishing your book on the Rothschilds and Cecil Rhodes anytime in the near future? Anytime in the near future. After we move, I have plans to progress that project, but it's already multiple volumes. So I don't know if I need to finish volumes and then release them together as a set or release one volume at a time. And uh, yeah, there's there's several projects like that that need to be progressed. That is the one most people are asking for. So once we get all the yeah. other uh, elements of the two businesses moved and stabilized, then I can work on more aggressive projects like that. Yeah, I think that'll uh, break the internet for sure. Oh, it's going to, yeah. It's, <laughs> anyway. It's not going to, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of people who have glib opinions and, you know, they have conspiracy theory. I'm like, that just shows how ignorant you are about how the world works because this is a major financial banking dynasty that has spanned 300 years and very much still has command and control influence over the British Empire, which is the mortal enemy of this country. But it's forgotten that. And now you got an American married into the British royal family and we're pretty cozy with them. And we seem, we seem to like, you know, bomb Yemen together and bomb all these other Syria. We're, we're in all these foreign excursions because of our British cousins and it's for their ultimate benefit, not Americans. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about with that. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully we can continue this conversation. Thanks a lot for your time, Richard. I appreciate the invitation, Rashad. And I uh, I like what you're doing. This Riverside platform. I'm going to have to check this out. It was a very smooth interview. And uh, as a graduate of Autonomy, I'm proud to talk to you anytime. You always have good questions. You had insightful questions during the course, during the Q&As. And uh, you continue to break new ground, to continue growing, and uh, you know, headed in the light direction. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Rich. All right, man. Peace. Take care. Peace.